Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin using automatic recurring buys at swanbitcoin.com. I'm Brady, head of education at Swan. Swan Signal pairs up great Bitcoiners for compelling discussions that are unique on the Bitcoin content scene. Every week, we broadcast Swan Signal live on Twitter at swanbitcoin and on YouTube at youtube.com slash swansignal. Then we publish the audio here on this feed. This week, I am joined by Stefan Levera, creator and host of the Stefan Levera podcast, and Marty Bent, creator and co-host of the Tales from the Crypt podcast, as well as Swan founder Corey Clipston. I'm glad you found your way here. Hope you enjoy. All right, so welcome back to Swan Signal Live. We're here at episode 18. It's hard to believe 18 episodes already here on Swan Signal Live. It's a weekly show that pairs up great Bitcoiners for compelling conversations. I'm Brady Swenson, head of marketing here at Swan, also head of education here at Swan. It's one and the same at Swan. It's uh, marketing education. We educate to market. We market to educate. Um, All right, so before we dive in, a quick word about Swan, about what we do here. We have built the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys. It's a very simple setup. You just connect your bank account and auto fund USD to the Swan account. Uh, Swan will then auto stack your BTC and you can set up an auto withdrawal of that Bitcoin back to your own wallet. So we do all of that with extremely low fees. We're up to 57% lower than Cash App's fees and up to 80% lower than Coinbase's fees. Uh, if you're auto stacking, it is clearly the best choice in the United States to go with Swan. You can get started stacking at swanbitcoin.com HRF for the Human Rights Foundation. And you'll get $10 of Bitcoin dropped into your account after you start saving with your Swan plan. And the Human Rights Foundation will receive a quarter point, that's 0.25% of every Swan plan purchase you make for up to three or four, three years, as long as that Swan plan is active which is an amazing deal for the Human Rights Foundation. You can also create your own URL uh, with our program, SwanForce, a referral program. Just like that, you'll get your own URL. You'll get uh, a welcome bar, a welcome banner with a message from you and your face greeting your referrals at the top of the page. It's really cool. Check it out at uh, swanbitcoin.com slash enlist. And uh, finally, we are chatting live at, on Telegram at t.me slash swansignal. That's the most active chat during this broadcast. We're, we're also checking the YouTube chat as well. But if you want to hop into a little bit livelier chat scenario, check out t.me slash swansignal. Okay, so let's dive into the show. We've got two pod stars here, some pod fathers in Bitcoin podcasting uh, hall of fame. They're going to be, I think, number one and two right up there. First, I'll introduce Stefan Levera of the Stefan Levera podcast host and creator. How's it going, man? Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to chat with you guys on the show. Absolutely. Excited for it. And then, of course, Marty Bentz, the owl man himself. Marty, are we going to get a little owl noise here? Are you feeling owlish? What's up? Thank What's you. Up? Uh, thank you for having me. Excited to be back. Nice. All right. Yeah, this is your second show, man. Uh, welcome back to the, to, the, uh, to the podcast. It's like, I think, Ben... 15 or so. I think you were on with Connor Brown, episode three, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. All right. Corey is here with us as well. Founder of Swan. Corey, how are you today, man? 
I'm well. I'm uh, enthusiastic about this conversation. I can't wait to uh, pit these guys against each other in a, in a battle royale of, of <laughs> Bitcoin education and knowledge and prognostication. Uh, these guys both, you know, come across on their shows as such easygoing, kind, lovable, you know, guiding mentor types. And, uh, and you know, we're just going to expose them for what they really are today. <laughs> <laughs> just vicious the big act and today it's, it's all falling apart <laughs> <laughs> you know i was gonna start with a kind of a, a softball to tee you guys up to compliment each other but maybe you know Corey's on the right track here and we should just go the opposite route all right so we, i was going to ask you guys to talk about uh you know compliment each other's shows like how would you shill Stefan? how would you shill marty's show to uh, a potential bitcoiner a new coiner uh, but yeah, if you want to take the opposite I would, route, I, would, I, would you can frame, as well. I mean, obviously, I love Marty's show. I listen to every episode. Um, I think the way I would shill it is really, I would say, look, this is this is the show. This is one of the shows that you got to listen to in Bitcoin. It helps keep you updated. And the way it's done is done in a way that tries to take, you know, like more technical things, but kind of spoken about in a way that's more accessible to the typical you know guy and gal out there um probably it's probably more of a guy's show but still like absolutely uh an essential listen um for people who want to stay up to date on what's going on in the bitcoin world oh thank you Stefan. and i uh i mean the message would be very similar but i would add that uh nobody because nobody comes to a podcast episode more prepared than Stefan lavera does a lot of deep research on uh, the subject at hand with any given guest and really dives into the nitty-gritty of uh, the concept, whether it be an economic concept or a technical Bitcoin concept. And you always come away knowing more about either Austrian economics or Bitcoin by listening to Stefan Rivera podcast. Thank you, Marty. Very kind. Too kind. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's true. <laughs> So what, uh, what's one thing that you guys can remember, you know, let's go way back. I mean, these podcasts have been going for well over two years now. Uh, what is something that you've learned from each other, either, you know, about how to podcast or just about Bitcoin itself? Stefan, you want to take this one first? Mm, good one. So I think part of it is part of it's stylistic as well, right? Like when you're listening to other interviewers, you're kind of like, oh, how's he, how's he interviewing here? How is he doing that? And you sort of pick up little ideas on that and you look at ways to ideally take away if you have verbal tics and common things that you do you sort of start to remove some of those for the benefit of your listener right so the idea is you know try to make the best possible experience for the listener in terms of you know delivering interesting or educational uh, material so i think that's that's probably something i think um also just because we've all kind of gone on this journey together of learning a lot about Bitcoin, it's, it sort of feels a bit like a shared experience, right? Like someone that Marty's interviewed and so, someone that I've interviewed and it sort of becomes a part of a, a shared conversation that many people recall. They'll sort of think about, oh, okay, what about that time that this guest was on that show? Remember how he was making this point? And sometimes that, that just kind of all flows into a way of how we sort of share and communicate different messages and, like technical material about Bitcoin, whether that's, oh, no, there's been a, you know, there's been a, there's some vulnerability disclosure or there's been some new software. It's just, it's just kind of uh, sort of taking that in and I guess thinking of the best way to deliver that uh, for the listener. 
Yeah, and I and to add to that, uh, you definitely don't. I, I try not to have as much overlap in the conversation, so I definitely listen to Stefan's podcast to see what he's talked about with a certain guest if they're going to be on my show in a relatively same or short amount of time uh, after they've been on SLP. Um, so just again, like Stefan alluded to, they're trying to expand on that conversation rather than rehash it and and get more unique views and really flesh out the idea and take the baton from, from an episode of, again, if a guest has been on recently. And then Steph and I, Stefan and I talk a lot like it's on the sidelines about the business aspect of podcasting and, and how we're uh, sort of launching our, our shows and, and um, positioning ourselves to, to advertisers if we're looking for some. And it's just Stefan's been a great resource, both in, in, from a Bitcoin sense and then a business sense as well. Nice. Uh, so what do you guys have plans in the future? I know, Stefan, you've launched your Ministry of Nodes initiative. Uh, and I know that, Marty, you and your buddy Matt, your partner Matt, are working on putting up some more educational material. Do you guys see yourselves branching out from the podcast platform to provide additional educational resources uh, for Bitcoiners as they come into the space? Stefan, you want to start? Yeah, sure. So, um, so for me with Ministry of Nodes, the idea is to provide guides and things. So if you're listening to SLP as sort of like the understand a little bit more about the technicals of how something works or the economics of how something works, but then if you need a bit more of a in-depth or like step-by-step guide to guide you through how to do it for yourself, that's kind of where the Ministry of Nodes uh, comes in. And so that's where we've got guides and videos and uh, we offer consulting for people as well. We do like video calls or if they're in Sydney, we'll meet them in person and teach them some Bitcoin, how to do Bitcoin stuff basically. Um, but yeah, so we're looking at different ways to try and uh, put out material and uh, even paid products and things like that on that front. Uh, but I think, yeah, for me, the podcast takes most of my time because I do a lot of research and I'm you know, you're booking guests and doing audio editing and transcription review and things like that. So I think, yeah, so for me, it's kind of like the podcast is probably most of my time. And then Ministry of Notes, it's it's kind of like a 50-50 thing between me and Katan. Um, so, yeah, we just kind of do what we can to try and ease people into their, you know, Bitcoin in the self-sovereign way journey. Totally. Yeah. That's on the play for okay. you, Marty. It's very similar. I mean, I just want to keep doing what we've been doing. Um, I've only ever added content or new uh new mediums for uh pushing content if if it's been demanded by the freaks and so it's been very natural the the podcast started because people are reading the newsletter like hey i'd love to hear a podcast so that started and then um hey i love your interviews i'd love to 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 see if you could do like a weekly news show and that's where matt came in we got rhr and matt's making incredible guides and we plan to keep doing that i think with the guides though it's, it's funny with all this moving software and hardware it's uh it's hard to to hone in on a guide that stays timeless for more than like six months so yeah. matt and i have a lot of conversations about that and i kind of prioritize that but yeah beyond that i mean yeah just keep doing what we're doing it's, i think people are liking it and, um obviously outside of the podcast uh, i have other work that i do like great american mining and, and dig and so that takes up a lot of time as well so it's just being able to handle that um stuff outside of the podcast and the newsletter and then being a new dad. So uh, I think we're on a pretty good cruise control now and we'll just 
adapt and evolve as uh, sort of the freaks tell us what, what they think we should do. Growing the Bitcoiner ranks one new coiner at a time in the old fashioned way, man. I <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, so, right. yeah, let's talk a little bit about mining, though. Let's take a little tiny tangent here because I was going to get into it later anyway. And, and Marty just mentioned um, that you're working for Great American Mining. Can you tell us what this company does and what their goals are for like the next decade as the mining industry really solidifies itself as a, as a global force, global player? Yeah, so obviously we're a miner here in North America, predominantly in the United States and probably predominantly in the United States for the foreseeable future and we'll expand in the U.S. And uh, basically we have a thesis that the oil and gas industry will become a big player in the Bitcoin mining world. And that's because they have a huge waste gas problem that they need to solve, they're incentivized to solve. So we have a, a hyper focus on the oil and gas industry and helping them become more efficient with their, their waste gas. So we actually position ourselves to them as a flare mitigation service. And uh, we do that via Bitcoin mining. So right now we are uh, expanding um, to, to more, to more uh, spots where there are wasted gas and we're, we're launching new containers. And so our thesis over the next five years is that by the 10 years oil and gas, um, companies will become some of the biggest miners in the world or a lot of hash rate will be produced at some point in the value chain of the oil and gas industry. And we're trying to position ourselves as, as the go-to sort of contract or service company to help them build out um, infrastructure that will allow them to Bitcoin mine uh, and allow us to mine Bitcoin as well um, via the engagements that we, that we get in with these oil and gas producers. So beyond, I mean, obviously this is sort of a picks and shovels kind of play, um, you know, ahead of the gold rush, but are there plans then to, I guess, assist particular kinds of miners? Uh, I know you said it was oil and gas type miners, but are you guys working on supplying, let's say something like uh, what Steve Barber's doing up in Canada, rigs like that to help kind of collect um, excess gas, et cetera, and uh, be able to provide it at a, you know, Bitcoin, I guess, uh, hashes at a much cheaper rate. Yeah, well, I mean, Steve, what Steve's doing is sort of exactly what we're doing on different scales. Yeah. I mean, he's a competitor, but a friendly competitor that we talk a lot with. And there's, again, the, the space is so wide open. There's so much waste energy out there to be consumed that there's enough room for, for plenty of people, at least at this given point in time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, we what we really specialize in is the design of the containers, depending on uh, the source of the gas. So you could have gas uh, at the point of extraction on the well pad, and that so that demands a very particular container design. Uh, you could have it midstream at a uh, refinery where they have some residue dirt gas that that demands sort of different designs. And so we have a team of engineers, specifically a chemical engineer who uh, does an incredible job of designing containers and um, immersion systems that really allow the miners to perform at the highest level depending on the climate or where they are along the oil and gas uh, supply chain so if we're at somewhere in the midstream like a refinery it's it's a lot more uh, 
it's a lot more sturdy. It's a lot steady. You don't have to move the containers that much. So you can design them a little differently. And then if you're on a well pad, you know, it's different. And every well pad's a little different in and of itself. And you have to take into consideration uh, the the weather and the, the climate conditions. So in North Dakota, uh, we're able to do air cooling, but down in West Texas, we have to design immersion systems. So basically going to these different points of the oil and gas value chain, sort of dissecting their specific problems with their waste gas and designing a solution for them specifically. How do you think that, uh, you know, mining and hash rate in its current state is playing into Bitcoin price and the cycles? Are you, now that you've kind of dipped your toe into this world, um, are you more of the mind that the, the, the hash cycle, you know, the having cycles do affect price in a fundamental way? Um, I think, I mean, I think they definitely do psychologically, uh, people reacting to supply getting cut and then, yeah, they're, they're going to pull the halvings, obviously pull, um, make it a lot less Bitcoin for, for miners to sell once it's being mined. Uh, and so what we've sort of noticed and what many in the mining industry have noticed is that miners are getting a lot smarter. It's, uh, they're operationally and then uh, with their energy choices. So we use waste gas because it's dirt cheap. And so I think this having particularly showed that a lot of the mining industry, a lot of hash rate has sort of found low cost energy and um, they've sort of honed in on that solution to being a profitable miner, which is find low cost energy and time the hardware market. So I just think overall the mining industry is becoming a lot smarter uh, as this is not even having just as time goes on as the hardware cycles through. Um, so yeah, that's uh, in regards to price. Yeah, I mean, it, because miners are finding lower energy costs are able to hold more and more experienced miners who have been through the cycle and sort of understand the hedging side of it are able to, to do more uh, in terms of selling less Bitcoin as well. So again, a smarter mining industry, could pull more supply off the market. But again, that's the beauty of mining as well. You don't know every single miner and it's hard to know the exact situation everybody's in. So you can never really be certain. Yeah. It's a beautiful game. Stefan, with your ear on the ground down there in Australia, what are you hearing in terms of mining industry change ups and plays in Australia? So there are actually a couple businesses I know of um, that are looking at, as to, to Marty's comment earlier, there are a couple more businesses that are looking at it and it's slowly professionalizing a little bit more. And there are some businesses that are considering more like around the capital aspect of uh, setting up a mining operation and uh, trying to trying to use that aspect as well. So, uh, but I would say I'm not as like super close connected with, um, with uh, that element of it so i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to speak with much detail or much uh, authority on that um but i think it's just generally part of the the overall story that more and more people are looking at ways to try and get into mining whether that's like professionally or even um you know people trying to do in their own kind of diy individual way as well um i think one factor that's perhaps a bit limiting here in, from an australian point of view is just that the cost of electricity has risen a lot so uh, I think that makes it less profitable. Like just generally speaking, it's it's harder to make it profitable here in Australia. 
uh, unless you have uh, pre-existing deals and you know you can get you know uh, good rates basically um, so in Australia it's I, I think it's just difficult because of electricity prices are high and it's hot as well so you know it's not that's not the ideal place it's not like you know Iceland or you know one of those places where it's already kind of cold and cheap electricity and things like that I mean I'm sure people will try it anyway yeah <laughs> No doubt. And I do, I have been hearing quite a few people come up to me and, and ask about, you know, getting started in mining. We've seen some in our telegram chat room, for instance, which you can join right now where we're chatting away and you can ask questions of Marty and Stefan, if you'd like, it's at t.me slash swan signal. And we were in there a couple of weeks ago, maybe just last week. And somebody was asking about mining, you know, and, and typically it's, you know, a relatively new person will come in and find that the idea of mining for Bitcoin is really exciting and interesting. And how do I get started? And, you know, it's one of those cases where we often say in Bitcoin, hey, it's not too late, right? You're not too late. It's not, it's still early. You just get some, get some Bitcoin, start learning. It's not too late. With, with mining, however, it's kind of a different story. Like it's kind of a bit too late if you're not uh, a serious business with lots of capital in the background and, and the ability to hire expertise to get into the game. But at the same time, it is still interesting to learn how this whole process works and to understand it. And there are these products called USB mining sticks, USB Bitcoin mining sticks, which you can plug into a laptop and, and provide an absolutely minuscule uh, number of hashes into the network, but you can see how it, you can see how it works, which is really interesting. So uh, have you guys ever tried any of the, either of those things out? Or tried your hand at mining personally? I used. Uh, I haven't. I haven't tried. Um, I think it's mostly the Australian. The Australian energy costs kind of kept me out of that game. Uh, but what about you, Marty? I was gonna say. I, I mean, I bought a twenty-one computer, which is just like a bigger version of of the USB drive you just described. Pretty. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I. I. I'm able to get insight into like the the flows of Bitcoin. We get due to the hash rate we're contributing to the network. So it's pretty cool to watch. Uh, we're, we use slush pool at the moment. So just looking at the slush dashboard, you can see when they mine the block and, and yep. the amount of Bitcoin you get in, relative to the, the hash rate you're contributing to the pool. So it is cool to see it work in person. I agree completely, yeah. It's, it's cool to see that part of it work. And it just gives you, I don't know, a more holistic sense. It's like, you know, getting into an engine and just like figuring out how to change the oil. It's a pretty simple process, but watching it happen makes a difference in how you visualize how the whole system works. Um, okay, so let's dive into Austrian economics. We've got a leading Austrian economic thinker uh, on our, in our group here today, and Stefan. And, you know, all, as Bitcoiners, all of us have become amateur Austrian economists and try to absorb those teachings as much as possible as we see Bitcoin as this real world example of sound money uh, described by Austrians uh, really teach people, teach us, not, not just us, but other people what money actually is. Um, so what aspect of Austrian economics, what lesson that Austrian economics teaches us is often misstated or not well understood among, among Bitcoiners, would you say, Stefan? Oh, good one. I would say the Gresham's Law one. So Gresham's Law is often incorrectly stated as bad money drives out good. That is actually a specific case of the general rule when one, the price of one thing is set by the government in terms of another. 
So walking that through in an example, it might be, let's say the government has set the price of, let's say the gold and silver ratio wrong. What would that do? It, it causes people to hold the undervalued currency and spend, uh, they want to preferentially spend the artificially overvalued currency. And that is actually, uh, now Murray Rothbard touches on this point in, um, I think it's in Man, Economy and State. Um, but yeah, so basically that's like a commonly misunderstood thing. So people sort of throw around these terms, oh, Gresham's Law. And then I think really the better way to think of it is more just like understand that there's a price control in place there. And it's a, it's a government control on the money, uh, on the, you know, uh, but it's, and that's why historically it's, it's shown that effect. But in practice, it'll be often the other one. And I think Pierre has spoken about this often, Thea's Law which is more like the other way around. It's like you want to, you know, in under kind of normal conditions when there's not a price control in place, that's, that's probably one, I guess that's kind of just a common one that just kind of, I guess uh, you see that a little bit. Um, another one is often around velocity theory. So I try and hit that a little bit as well because people mm -hmm. think, Oh, this idea of like MV equals PQ, this idea that's, you know, the, the, the stock of money, the velocity of money, the price and the time, or the quantity or like the kind of the turnover rate. Uh, but it's, it's a bunk concept, but you see people in the crypto world who are all about, Oh, we got to have, we've got to slow down the velocity of our toke of our shitcoin, And you know, uh, but it's just a bunk concept. It's like, they've not even like, you've got to stop and think back what's happening at the individual level. What's happening at the person to person level when we're thinking about, okay, do I want to give you, you know, say I want to buy this steak from you for, whatever, you know, 300,000 sats. What, what is my valuation of that stake that I'm buying from you first? That's what's more important, not the turnover aspect, because all money all cash balances are held by somebody somewhere at some time. Right. So, yeah. Nice. That's fantastic. Marty, what about you? Like, what is one aspect of Austrian economics that took you a while to really grasp and now it makes like a lot of good sense and is important to your understanding of, of Bitcoin. Mm. Well, I was indoctrinated with Keynesian uh, economic theory in college as I studied economics and didn't come to find or really dive into Austrian uh, theory until after college. And I think the overcoming uh, the, uh, uh, the, What's it called? The paradox of thrift. The uh, yeah. yeah, the paradox of thrift. Like getting over that point, and I think for me, the eye-opening moment uh, when you really hone in on Austrian economics is that it gets down to the individual, like Stefan mentioned earlier, and that was a really powerful moment for me. Is when you sort of Austrian economics just sort of described a complex system where individuals acting in their own interest will, will turn out to, to make pretty good decisions on. On, in the long term and in, in, in aggregate and so the paradox of thrift for me was a big one to get over I was just stuck in that mindset of oh we're getting a recession and people aren't spending you have this deflationary spiral and things get crazy and, and the, the idea of time preference which safe really drives home and, and understanding that people have different time preferences and start their capital accumulation and deployment at different points in time it really sort of makes those Keynesian ideas like seem very stupid at the end of the day. So uh, again, time preference, individuals acting on behalf of themselves, 
and um, really comparing that to the the granularity with which Keynesianism tries to describe the world and just use people and economic inputs as as data points to put in the model instead of uh, really just coming to terms with the fact that individuals act in their own interest and they tend to um, get creative and bring new ideas to market that those models can't really even factor in. Interestingly, I also wonder, it's sometimes, now again, we, I believe, you know, I, I am a fan of Austrian economics, but I think in some ways it's sort of like Satoshi didn't necessarily understand all of that, right? He just kind of thought like, it's almost like we, in some ways are kind of projecting our own uh, thought onto what would make a better money onto Bitcoin in some ways. But I think it's also that it happened to be a better way to make money. And that's just why it's worked so well so far because and it's grown for what is it now? 11, 11 and a half years or whatever it is. So I think that's kind of this interesting idea that, you know, Satoshi wasn't necessarily like an Austrian. It just kind of, it just the, the product of what he made makes more sense if you think if you conceive of it as a as a typical austrian economist would you don't think that satoshi had the ideas of sound money though like understood these concepts it seems so so intentional i don't actually know because i wonder whether you know maybe satoshi because i think this is one of those things where people have a tendency to idolize or sort of say oh satoshi was amazing he was a soothsayer he knew like we don't know that (laughs) Like what if all he all Satoshi wanted was to make digit literally like the the kind of bearer asset aspect of Bitcoin, and it just so happened that he hit on the right formula that made it work um, from uh, from that overall fixed supply perspective that we think makes so much more sense. So maybe there are some things that he sort of got right by accident or oh, maybe not by accident. Well, yeah, maybe by accident, but also just by trying to make it similar to gold. He just kind yeah. of, he just kind of hit on the right formula, the winning formula, if you will. Yeah. It's fascinating to think about. And I'd never really considered that the intention of these, the supply cap, the um, limited supply cap or the hard supply cap was not because uh, that Satoshi was somehow uh, an Austrian to some extent, right? I always figured that, that was the case because the sort of Keynesian ideology uh, that we're all brought up with is that, you know, you need to target 2% inflation. So it seems like, you know, like the default would have been for him to be like, all right, we're going to set a 2% inflation for every year from, from now to eternity. Um, but that's not what happened, <laughs> you know? So it's... Who knows, it's right? Because like some of those early cypherpunk guys, like someone like Tim May, right? I think he arguably was influenced by the Austrians and he was an out and out anarcho-capitalist. Or if you look at, say, Hal Finney's, some of his early posts, he mentions, he he points to like George Selgin and uh, Larry White, um, who uh, sort of came from an Austrian school, although now they're kind of, they're sort of a little bit more of a tangent of the Austrian school. Um, But there were there were some of these ideas were there influencing um but i would we, we don't necessarily know that satoshi was into austrian economics like we yeah, are now of course right? yeah yeah but those ideas we do have evidence that those ideas were kind of floating around the scene though uh whether or not satoshi wasn't you know would call him or herself or themselves an austrian economist um so marty let's check out this one with you what do you think yeah, uh, you would tell or you would suggest to someone who's kind of coming in a new Bitcoiner who 
you know, hasn't really dived into the Austrian economic economics rabbit hole too much. Um, what would you recommend to them? Two pieces of content uh, that you would recommend to them to get started on learning Austrian econ. Um, it's probably just recency bias because I've been reading it this summer. But Human Action, it's a, it's a, it's a mammoth of a book to get through, but it's been very worthwhile. Uh, I can't believe it's taken me this long. Pierre Rochard basically walked me through it on the first episode of TFTC with a guest. Uh-huh. Uh, it's taken me almost three years later to sort of work through it. Uh, I mean, but yeah, it gets through all the the basics. Um, I mean, in very very uh very detailed but uh so that and with the bitcoin perspective so we're just talking uh yeah to somebody just somebody who's into bitcoin but hasn't gone into austrian econ yet that's a human action uh, and then the road to serfdom by hayek uh, i really like that book in describing i mean particularly today when when the world is attempting or not the world, but a lot of people in the world are attempting to move uh, a lot of Western society, more socialist tendencies. I think the road to serfdom is um, a great book that really breaks down um, and is a great thought experiment and why that probably isn't the best way to do things. And an Austrian tilt probably makes more sense. Nice. What about you, Stefan? I'm sure you've had to answer this question. Oh, many times, many times. So (laughs) I think we within the Bitcoin world are, chatting about a lot of Austrian economics, specifically monetary economics. I think if, if we're interested to just understand economics generally, then my one and two recommendations in terms of books would be one, economics in one lesson. I think that should be the first one that you read from an, if you want to learn about how, how is an Austrian thinking about, uh, or how, do, how does an economist think? I think that's a good one. Number two, I would actually recommend Choice by Bob Murphy. So that is because I find it's hard to give human action to a newbie. I find Choice is actually like a, almost like a re-envisioned version. And now it's Bob Murphy's interpretation of Mises in some ways, but he's put it in modern terms in a way that's easy for a new person to get into. And so then I typically recommend those two as the first two resources uh, I'm kind of assuming they would have already read the Bitcoin standard, let's say. Um, and then I would sort of then sort of recommend a bunch of other things that kind of work their way up into getting to man economy and state and uh, human action as kind of like the, the pinnacle uh, texts, if you will, within the, uh, the magnum opus level text within mm-hmm. Austrian economics. But uh, look, everyone's got their own pathway. Some people like articles, some people like podcasts, some people like YouTube. I mean, you just have to sort of, uh, sort of meet the other person where they're at and mm-hmm. give them a recommendation appropriate to where they're out, where they are. Yeah. yeah. No, I was like for me starting uh, my path down learning about Austrian economics, starting a podcast in Mises.org uh, and then into the books. But yeah, if you're going to dive into human action, it's got, uh, it's, you, you got to adapt to the vernacular of like 19, 1940s, which is, for a dumbed down society today. It's, 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 uh, it's a transition for some people. <laughs> well, if you're listening to this, you're probably a podcast fan. Um, and there are two podcast episodes on Stefan's feed that are in, uh, intro to Keynesian economics, which are fantastic. And I would recommend those as my personal recommendations. Uh, Corey, what would you 
recommend? Yeah, honestly, I will uh, just give the recommendation that it can be really daunting to take on one of the big, like Mises texts from a standing start. And thank goodness, some really smart people, uh, I think it was Mises Institute people put together uh, the Mises Reader, I think. Um, Let me me bring it up. Uh, Yeah, so that's what I've been making my way through um, more recently. And there's also a Mises audio books podcast that has uh, a bunch of them on there. So, you know, we're all kind of getting a lot of our Bitcoin information through our ears. And I find it increasingly difficult, especially with kids and being busy to, to sit down and read for, you know, unbroken hours of time and notwithstanding what Naval Ravikant said on Twitter last week that uh, <laughs> listening to books is for stupid people or whatever it was. Uh, it was very, very insensitive in this day and age to, you know, some people do learn better uh, by listening. Um, so I'm really enjoying uh, catching up on a lot of Austrians uh, that I also uh, was not spoon fed with my Keynesian education uh, in my ears, the same way I like to li- listen to all three of your podcasts. <laughs> oh, and then the one I am actually uh, that I would, I, I just think it's, it's a pretty easy read and it's a relatively recent one. So it doesn't have the heavy language, but the ethics of money production has just been uh, a great book. And I'm already like halfway through my second read of that one. So I do recommend that one a lot. Yeah. Uh, Holzman's, point about misallocation of capital in that book really, really helped me understand how insidious the fiat banking system is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's also, Holzman's also got some great uh, talks as well. If you look up um, Holzman on YouTube, you can see he's got one called cultural consequences of fiat money. And I think uh, even for safe, I think Holzman's work influenced safety as well in the Bitcoin standard, because Holzman was the one who pulled up and like spoke about, this is how fiat money has certain cultural consequences and impacts. And that is, I think, what flowed into the Bitcoin standard as well. So uh, phenomenal work. Um, I'm a huge fan. Same. Likewise, man. Ethics of Money Production is uh, a top recommendation on my list as well. Um, Fantastic book. And, you know, a very accessible read. Um, Unlike, you know, some of these other older texts, Holzman is uh, contemporary and um, very accessible. Uh, texts and very powerful as well. Um, all right, so I want to kind of switch topics over to uh, marketing, you know, Bitcoin marketing and marketing narratives. And we've been having this conversation on on Twitter and in Telegram about how Bitcoin has or does not have uh, a marketing team or needs or does not need marketing. Um, where do you guys fall on? either side of those questions. Are you in the quadrant that Bitcoin does have some kind of like organic marketing and needs it or the opposite side where there is no such thing as Bitcoin marketing and it doesn't need it. Even if there were. Marty, you want to take this uh, one first one? Um, yeah. I mean, obviously there's no marketing team. I, I don't, I don't agree with people who think Bitcoin needs more marketing. I think the product speaks for itself. And I think, we, everybody here, is evidence that individuals are so drawn to Bitcoin that they will, if somebody else isn't, somebody, they'll pick up, um, they'll just pick up and start trying to educate people about Bitcoin. I don't, mm-hmm. they, um, I don't think we'll be the last content creators to, to focus on this subject. And again, going back to the first point, Bitcoin works and 
I don't think you can replicate what Bitcoin has done and it's going to continue working as long as uh, people download full nodes, transact on the network, invest in mining infrastructure. So being in the mining side of things um, and noticing how Bitcoin mining specifically has secondary and tertiary benefits for uh, industries sort of tangential to Bitcoin or not even involved with Bitcoin. Like I, I just think it's going to be, I think, I think it's success is almost inevitable. And again, as long as it's sufficiently distributed and enabling peer to peer transactions, roughly every 10 minutes, I don't really think it needs a marketing team. The markets itself and the people who need it are able to find it. Yeah. So my take is, I think the overarching driving factor here is number go up, right? The scarcity of Bitcoin, the over, like that is just the, you know, you zoom out, that's really what's driving all of this stuff. However, I think on the margin, a skilled communicator, a skilled educator can help that it could, because you can help more people get to the real, instead of them wasting their time with whatever Keynesian or monetary modern you know, MMT theory and whatever other theories are out there, if you can kind of zero them in on, hey, this is why it's important. This is, this is why you can use it. I think that kind of person can make a difference. And I think that is probably the, I think, because a lot of people got really triggered by the whole marketing thing and like my recent episode with Dan Held. And like, I think some, some of it is like, a, how would I say it? It's like, some of it is like, people don't want to admit that sometimes you know, messages are spread in a deliberate way and it takes someone to spread that. And also, I think we should distinguish between what people are thinking of when you think of marketing. They're thinking like, oh, corporate marketing, that's slimy. That's, yeah, that's, oh, that's, I don't want that. I want kind of the pure and sovereign message, right? And obviously, I think all of us here, we're all trying to teach the sovereign message of Bitcoin. Uh, but in so it just comes down to what do you what is marketing right and i think it can you know you don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be seen as like oh it's corporate marketing it's it can just be more like hey i'm telling my i'm teaching my family i'm teaching my friends about bitcoin and that is in some sense a decentralized marketing team but i think i guess the the i, can, I think some of the pushback comes around certain tactics and certain techniques used uh for that marketing uh, and that was obviously some of the discussion uh, that was going on on Twitter or, you know, or in uh, Telegram chat groups and so on about whatever other technique, whether that's follow, unfollow or other things like that. Um, but I think for me, it's really more about are there ways that I can be more effective as a communicator and that I can help teach people more efficiently or, you know, reach more people and give them, like, deliver them this kind of self-sovereign Bitcoin message. And for that, I think there are things that we can do to, you know, continually improve. It's a journey and we're all, we're all continually learning and looking at ways to uh, be more effective. Corey, what have you learned about, thanks, Stefan, for all that. What have you learned, Corey, from running and trying to market Bitcoin within a company? It is, is does the idea or of intentional intentionally marketing Bitcoin really like have hold a candle to number go up in terms of the value there? Um, well, I mean, regardless of whether anybody thinks that Bitcoin needs marketing or not, uh, 
well over a million people, probably over 5 million people today, somewhere around the world will do something to market Bitcoin. They'll say something, they'll do something, they'll post something. They'll take some kind of action to try to influence the, the thoughts and actions of somebody else, which is marketing. Um, so that's the, it's just going to happen. There's a social layer to Bitcoin on top of a protocol layer. And the social layer is where the incentives are to, uh, you know, obviously try to stack as many sats for yourself and, and hopefully watch other people discover that and number go up. But we all have the incentive to try to get other people to believe that the sats are valuable and, and you know, to recognize and, and learn. And, and uh, you know, luckily the product has the goods, so you don't have to be feeling skeezy about it when you spread Bitcoin knowledge and you, you spread your own love and try to help infect other people with the Bitcoin virus. You're actually doing something good for them. Um, you know, so I think it's... Uh, it was always going to be extremely well marketed and there were some, some of the best marketing that existed for Bitcoin was, you know, even in the first couple of years or even pre-launch as people started to think about it and Hal talking about, you know, a future of $10 million Bitcoin and, you know, even Satoshi talking about different aspects of it that might be interesting. Uh, you know, Gwern writing an article in 2011 that is still a touchstone piece today. You know, those are all, Education is marketing in Bitcoin. That's why Brady's, you know, his title is just <laughs> head of education because you spend all your time just trying to figure out how to help people understand Bitcoin. And, you know, I always say, you know, one's, uh, one's propensity to store value in the Bitcoin pro protocol is directly correlated to their understanding of Bitcoin. So the whole point is getting people to understand it more so that they'll feel more comfortable with the risk reward trade off and, you know, want to store more value uh, in it over time and want to work harder uh, to get to be able to do that. So. I don't know. I, I do think that it's probably Mr. Hoddle, I think, on Twitter that I think had the key, the key tweet or the key, re key reply a week ago, which was um, false advertising is really what people don't like. And I think that's what a lot of us really don't like about, you know, the McDLT funds trying to shovel their shit burgers. And it's what we don't like about the cryptos and the trons and all that, all this crap. And, you know, I think we want to it, false advertising really offends Bitcoiners very, very much. <laughs> and, and I think that's what people are trying to look out for is like, and that goes for Bitcoin too. Like people, people have very specific ideas of how Bitcoin should be marketed and there's diversity there, but we don't want the James Altuchers out there, you know, trying to get, you know, grandma and sunny boy to put more than their net worth on credit cards, buying Bitcoin, like be responsible about it. Uh, we don't want people to get wrecked and it's really easy to get wrecked on Bitcoin. You know, you can get over leveraged and you can buy too much more than you can handle. And, you know, you can, you can, you know, do it wrong by buying on leverage and, you know, you can buy it in the wrong place and get the wrong signals. Like there's so many bad ways to get into Bitcoin and there's so many bad ways to buy Bitcoin. So, you know, the education and the marketing of the companies and the people in the space is absolutely crucial. Even if you know that Bitcoin's going to be fine, and Bitcoin is going to, you know, do what it's going to do. And it doesn't really matter because in the long run, it's fine. But what about the short run? You know, like Andreas always said, like, if you can, if you can stop one episode of hyperinflation anywhere in the world, then every single thing that you can possibly do for Bitcoin today to make a you know, to make Bitcoinization happen as soon as possible is essentially a moral imperative. Um, and that's kind of where I am. Like, I'm, I'm not patient about this. I don't want it to take a long time. I want to bring it about around soon. I want everyone to understand uh, how treasonous and, and lecherous, you know, the Fed and the current system is. And I want it to end as soon as possible.
here, here, man. Letting that one soak in for just a minute. Appreciate those words. Um, well, I think we can all agree, you know, this is a semantics thing, uh, a semantics thing largely. Um, and in any case, I think we can all agree that there are narratives, whether or not they arise organically, that dominate the discussion about Bitcoin. So let's talk for a minute about those narratives. Uh, Marty, we'll start with you. What narrative do you think that is the prevailing narrative right now for Bitcoin and how will those narratives evolve as we sort of march up the S curve of adoption for the protocol? I mean, the predominant mainstream narrative, I guess, is digital gold, but I tweeted this out and said this many times on the podcast, like the loudest narratives uh, come and go, but the soundest narratives have been around for, quite a while and one narrative that i've been sort of partial to is how finney's view of bitcoin banks in the future and he wrote that that initial bitcoin talk.org post i believe it was december 30 30th or 31st 2010 i want to say mm-hmm. so that's like the very beginning of of well, not the very beginning but the very early stages of bitcoin and i mean yeah bitcoin again it, it's a peer-to-peer distributed messaging system that has a bare instrument token attached to it and you can use that token for many things you can hodl it you can spend it you can save it you can use it for collateral like people focus too much on the narratives and the actual things that and don't focus enough on the actual things that bitcoin enables it enables all these things at once if you want to spend it people do want to spend it go spend it if you want to hodl it hodl it um the narratives really don't matter. Just what matters is maintaining what Bitcoin enables, which is all those things. But yeah, I mean, as we go up the S curve, to me personally, yeah, it makes makes sense to hodl more than you spend, and they like spend very small fraction of your Bitcoin if you have to. And I hey, I use Lightning uh, many times a week. Um, I have a shop on my website where we accept bitcoin as, as payment so we're encouraging people to spend bitcoin but uh, again going back to austrian economics it's an individual choice for each individual and that choice will be determined by their circumstances at any given point in time but yeah i think right now bitcoin is, is digital gold and as a savings account is why i use it mostly but in the future uh, especially as lightning uh, gets more mature as more value comes onto the network that the predominant use case will change. I don't want to say narrative, but use case uh, or the way people are using it. So Bitcoin is super collateral. I could see being the next, the next transitionary phase on, on top of the, the digital gold uh, use case. Um, I could see that becoming the next most predominant case is, is Bitcoin as collateral. Nice. I like that. Stefan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree very much with Marty. I think, um, I guess the way I'm thinking of it is you can, obviously, Bitcoin is permissionless. If you want to use it, if you want to coin join spend and use it for spending right now, that is your absolute you know, right within Bitcoin land, as long as you're paying the transaction fee, right? But I think it, it comes to, in my mind, what are most people going to use Bitcoin for? And I think digital gold will resonate most strongly in that case. So. I think we have to think back to someone like VJ, right? He might sort of look at, okay, it's Bitcoin's this embryo. And even though superficially the different embryos might look the same, you have to look at what it's going to grow up to be. And in the case of Bitcoin, it's, 
it just we know tra- it's just not going to be used day to day on chain transactional commerce like longer term that's just not going to be feasible so it can only be this way and i think the other point to add is also that some of the guys like the Glassnode guys, when they are doing some statistical analysis and saying, okay, look, 61% of Bitcoins have not moved for a year. 45% of Bitcoins have not moved for two years. I think to me, it's quite clear that hodling and digital gold and savings technology are far more predominant and make a lot more sense given what Bitcoin is. Nobody's saying you can't use it for permissionless spends and so on. Um, it's just that that's not what people like assessed in the totality. What is, what are more people using it for? I'd say it's for digital gold and hodling. And so I think the implication then is also in terms of when we are educating or marketing Bitcoin, what do we think is going to resonate best? And so, you know, because you don't want to sell someone the message, you know, fast, cheap and free forever, because that's not, that's not what it is. And so, you know, obviously, lightning and so on like people can use that but i think for most people it's going to be a digital gold thing at least for you know for a little while agree and that's the narrative i think it that uh, is probably best for bitcoin right now as bitcoin is kind of on a path to compete with gold's market cap and i think we'll be hearing a lot about the that spread the spread between Bitcoin and gold's market cap in the coming years. Uh, Corey, what are your thoughts on this? Um, you know, skip me for this one. I, I know the next topic coming up. I want to hit that one hard. All right. Yeah. Okay. We're going to, we're going to take the flip side of, of this, the, uh, the kind of positive narratives a way to describe Bitcoin and talk about the FUD that we'll be facing uh, in the coming years. Uh, so first of all, like which, which FUD do you think, or and it could be something completely new that we haven't heard of yet that you might have kind of cooking up in the back of your anti-Bitcoin mind, uh, your adversarial thinking. Um, what FUD do you think will be most prevalent in this coming bull cycle uh, and potentially the most damaging in the next decade? Uh, let's start. Uh, Sorry, yeah, go ahead, Marty. I thought, mm, <clears throat> I see one or two. I'm biased towards one, so I'll save that for the last half. But um, I think with all this de-platforming going on and specifically with via payment processors, the predominantly uh, conservative thinking personalities, if you will, I think it'll be natural for them to adopt Bitcoin and, and accept it as payment. And uh, a lot of the people who canceled and deplatformed those people will begin complaining about Bitcoin and saying that it's funding uncouth thinking or it's, it's funding wrong think and whatever that may be at any given point in time. That could be a lot of fun. Um, but I think energy too, is, especially if hash rate goes up exponentially. And that's something we're trying to get in front of the great American mining is like, Hey, look, we're, we're here helping these energy providers become more efficient. So uh, that's something I've been, vehemently trying to educate the readers of the bent and listeners of tftc for a couple of years now is hey like bitcoin actually helps us become more energy efficient despite all the thought about boiling oceans and and having the same energy consumption as denmark um, people really just look at that at a surface level and don't understand what's going on under the hood and the, the energy sources that are being utilized and 
what would happen with those sources if, if Bitcoin miners were not consuming them. Totally. Yep. What are we going to face on the FUD department, Stefan? Oh, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot, right? The typical ones you'll hear is like, oh, my quantum and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, not enough fees and, you know, or too, too, fees too high, right? These are kind of like the high level, surface level BS, right? That I think people like, once you sort of do some more research into it, you realize that those aren't really the vectors. I think some of the real vectors will be things like, maybe some upstream dependency of Bitcoin that needs more work in terms of people being able to kind of verify the whole, the entire tool chain or, you know, things like that, that are kind of more at like a technical level uh, from an economic angle. I could see uh, absolutely the whole energy argument of like, Oh, I, I don't like that so much energy is being used for our global monetary system. And <laughs> that is a subjective perception, right? Because we would say, no, look, it's worth it. We don't under, like, yeah, it's going to cost a lot of energy, but that energy is actually worth it. And that is a subjective perception. So for some people, they'll just never agree. You, you can tell them all the arguments in the world, it'll never be good enough for them. So that is one aspect. I think the other big one that is going to be coming up is a lot of the rhetoric around inequality. So there will be a lot of people who are saying, oh, it's not fair. You got Bitcoin early. It was, you know, you got lucky. And now you need to share that Bitcoin with everyone else or otherwise we're going to brutalize you. We're going to lock you up. We're going to put on cap punitive taxes on you. We're going to do all this whatever stuff uh, because it's people start to resent you for storing your wealth outside the system. Why aren't you in the same boat with all of us? Because we all lost our money on um, the fiat bubble that, you know, so that's potentially mm -hmm. another angle. And that and, that yeah that'll definitely i mean if the last three months are, are a precursor to anything it's to, to that um that vitriol that could pop up out of nowhere and um the the governments like uncouth governments like venezuela accepting bitcoin for password passport payments if, if you want to get the um what's his name brad sherman if you want to get him all riled up spewing fud on capitol hill that's a good way to do it i would imagine um so that'll become more of the narrative and then is it trying to educate people like hey yeah Maduro owns bitcoin but so do a lot of his citizens are trying to get away from him it's actually helping them out a lot uh so yeah. do you want to put them do you do you want to put that use case uh out of use for them like uh that'll, that'll yeah, pop up as well in my, if, if one of those is going to happen first, I suspect the evil people use Bitcoin one will be uh, the first one. And then, you know, once Bitcoin goes way, way higher, probably, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, then you'll start to see the, uh, oh, this is unfair. Um, I suspect that just like everything else in the US, every issue basically just gets politicized and like one side takes you know, one side of the issue and the other side takes the other. So I actually think that one probably will go okay because I don't think it'll be like, you know, 1% Bitcoiners versus 99%. I actually suspect it'll be like 50% are in favor of Bitcoin and 50% are not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it may actually be a big accelerant if, uh, you know, and I, I suspect we, we probably know which side will, will take up the mantle of Bitcoin's unfair. Um, you know, and it's not it, it, the winning side is not going to be the one that I grew up politically aligned with. 
but uh, when it comes to you know <laughs> freedom and being anti-tyranny and you know not not forcing me to say things that I don't want to say and things like that, you know that's going to be uh, that's going to be the right side of the of the aisle in the U.S. I think that's going to end up carrying the Bitcoin torch forward a lot faster. Um, just pretty interesting for a lot of people on the coasts that uh, that work on Bitcoin and love it and run some of these companies and et cetera. Um, but uh, that's, that's generally where in economic thought and political thought, uh, there's much better alignment for Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree. I think the whole angle it very much is going to be about um, it'll first be the stuff of, Oh, it's used by the terrorists and the drug Lords and the, you know, oh, bad people use Bitcoin. I think that's, that's going to come first. Yeah. And this is what I love about Bitcoin, you know, like it's, there are people in terms of political ideologies, um, you know, and I was really into politics uh, before Bitcoin, Bitcoin made politics seem much more irrelevant to me uh, because the, the, it's all fighting over uh, issues that are caused by one particular root problem, which I think is the, the fact that the money is completely messed up. It touches pretty much every every you know aspect of uh, cultural ill. You know, not every single one, but it. I think all are at least touched by it, at least a little bit. And so the kind of bickering back and forth and the puppets, you know, games that go on in politics, everybody seems to be so tired of. Bitcoin offers an alternative, not just the money, but also to uh, the way we organize society and come to consensus. And what's amazing is there are there are people in Bitcoin who I never would have been like friends or associated with because of their political ideologies and which, you know, which side of the aisle we were on that, uh, you know, are very, you know, good friends and reasonable people and want the same, you know, outcomes that I want. And uh, so anyway, I think, I think Bitcoin's fascinating in that regard. Um, to kind of bring this back though a little bit, I wanted to touch on a topic that we didn't get to, uh, to address as deeply as I wanted to, but we're talking about how, you know the fud the governments are going to use against bitcoin and one of them obviously is you know bitcoin is for criminals um, and so i think another step the governments might be able to take is uh, at that point is banning cash right just completely ban cash make all money digital uh, and and use that as a as a reason why a kind of scare tactic to bring that in um, so Corey, did you want to start us on this one uh, no, I'll, I'll chime in after. Okay, so let's go Stefan first then. Sure. So look, I think it's fair to say COVID has accelerated the war on cash in Australia. It's arguably done it by about five years. This is like literally on the news. They were saying they've, they're starting to shut down some more bank branches and shut down more ATMs. So right now there's an equity issue for people you know who are older. They're not as used to using digital digital money, obviously, like like talking tap and pay and so on. They're used to cash. And so because of COVID, it's kind of accelerated that war against that. So I anticipate more people will adopt Bitcoin because of this war on cash aspect. Uh, but obviously, governments will try to put in their own lipstick on a pig and they'll have their CBDC, as they call it, the Central Bank Digital Currency. But basically, it will still have a bad monetary policy. But ultimately, people will see number go up and they'll be like, well, hey, give me some of that, right? I want some of that orange coin. I don't want that government uh, brown coin. So that's, I think, the driving factor that I see happen. So it's, um, it's, it, we're going to see this increasing war on the ability for people to transact privately using cash. 
that demand will naturally flow over into the Bitcoin world and people will be on their, you know, their samurai wallet and so on using like coin join spends and coin swaps from Chris Belcher and stuff like that. I think that's stuff that we can anticipate over the next few years. I completely agree. I mean, central bankers and people, uh, entities like the IMF have been sort of foreshadowing this for years. Uh, Ken Rogoff with his book, uh, how to get negative interest. I don't forget the name, but it basically described how to get negative interest rates in a cashless society in America. And COVID certainly a good way to accelerate that. And would, uh, I mean, obviously they mean physical cash, but Bitcoin is cash. Would they try to, would they try to uh, sort of pigeonhole Bitcoin into that ban as well? We shall see. I doubt it. But uh, as somebody who loves cash, like I love going to the ATM and getting cash and spending cash at a bar or at a restaurant. And I, I, I like, being able to hold the money. I think it would be terribly sad, but it probably is inevitable. The forces that, uh, and the powers that be have been sort of foreshadowing that they want to move us in this direction for some time. And luckily we do have Bitcoin as a sort of fail, not even a fail safe, but a, a uh, separate network that we can transition to, to sort of keep some sort of leverage against the state that's ability to control our, our money. Is that, I mean, Bank cash and we go purely digital and it's i mean arguably we already have like a chinese surveillance social credit system here uh it's just less overt but once you go completely cashless it's uh, extremely easy to to implement something like that in a very overt way yeah i'm i'm just thinking about this and you know it, it it's so scary how closely the path that we're headed mirrors uh, so many sci-fi novels from the last 50 years. <laughs> it's just freaky. And then when you look at, uh, you know, the financial censorship that we've been watching accelerate over the last 10 years, and now you're looking at cancel culture, which is, you know, essentially shutting off the, the means of disseminating information for people that don't uh, say the right things. And you know, that's expanding very, very rapidly. Like it seems to be gaining steam. Um, and when those two things merge and you have cancel culture, but for finance, uh, and that that starts to happen very quickly. Um, uh, it, do it doesn't seem very far off. Like it seems like they're both accelerating and it seems like they'll merge at some point and then it'll just be really, really terrible uh, for a lot of people here i'm pretty sure andrew torba from gab like him and his wife got cut off from visa they can't even access like debit cards visa debit cards like, wow it's happening they i was not aware of that so they actually like the company wouldn't serve individuals not a company they weren't no like, individual humans. and i believe his wife uh, as yeah well. yeah i mean shoot and the, the, the funny, so scary. The, yeah, the troubling thing with all the cancel culture stuff as well is it's not just you, it's your family and your friends and your, you know, it's sort of seen like, oh, you were friends with this other guy who said this other objectionable thing. Now we're going to cancel you too. So these are all very concerning things. And I think Bitcoin is a big part of the resistance against that. And I think it, for people who are not necessarily libertarians, generally, they're going to become libertarian about money. And that's what counts. I love that point, and I've said this 
recently on somebody else's podcast, but it was basically that so many things that we argue about across society, economics, politics, uh, that appear to have, you know, two reasonable sides or five reasonable opinions that you can hold or whatever, because there's no way to settle the issue. Uh, Bitcoin's existence and its spread and the reality that it is uh, beginning to impose upon the world is, is basically, I tweeted out yesterday that, you know, something like Bitcoin upholds the, the ideas of the American revolution. And then a couple seconds later, I was like, well, actually, like Bitcoin also secures the ideals of the Enlightenment. Um, and those things, you know, are objectively true, no matter what, you know, Jacques Derrida and deconstructionists and all these people that came to, to ruin things. <laughs> My parents and their generation, basically. Um, <laughs> they met on Haight-Ashbury in the 70s. What are you going to do? I'm climbing out of a deep hole here. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's... Uh, all this relativism is just going to be set by the wayside and it's just going to be like a joke, like this funny little toy. It's going to look like flat earthers in 15, 20 years. Um, and I welcome that. I welcome having like a, a, a wider group of people around the world that have a common understanding of how the world actually works and what we're actually here for. And that understand words like praxeology and human rights and the enlightenment and kind of just get back to classical culture. And, you know, I think it'll just be, um, I'm really excited to settle some of these really divisive arguments that have that have never healed, especially in Western society uh, since the 60s and 70s, and have just kind of like metastasized in academia and just corners of of, of different areas where people live in bubbles. And Bitcoin is just going to bust those bubbles real quick when it starts to really take hold. Yeah, I mean, I've already alluded to a lot of the problems that people bicker about money's at the core. So hopefully Bitcoin is successful and we do get a hard money standard for the digital age. Things will be severely less politicized, which I hope to God happens. It's so nauseating and annoying to have to put up stupid bickering back and forth, red team versus blue team election cycle after election cycle. It's truly, it's monotonous at this point. I love the idea of Bitcoin kind of coming in and flattening like a clean slate, you know, tabula rasa, like coming in and sort of wiping everything clean of all of those metastasized problems that Corey was talking about. It really kind of puts everyone back on a level playing field. It's, it's the most fair money, the most fair form of money. It can't, can't be manipulated both supply wise, but also in, you know, by access, the, the ways, ways that can be accessed, right. It's accessible freely to everyone. Um, so yeah, I, I think as as I come back to you know over and over again this idea of of the Bitcoin Renaissance, I see the slate being wiped clean and up from that clean slate, you know, a new society emerging where we've put a lot of these sort of left and right issues behind us um, and and have a way to approach them with a new lens. Right, those problems aren't going to go away, but we'll have a new way to approach the solutions. I think that is outside of the, the, you know, the spectrum, the black and white spectrum that we're mired in right now. Look, I think some of that stuff will never go away, right? Like even imagine we're all living in our Bitcoin citadels. There'll be those people who are kind of more in a relative sense, more left and right will have their arguments, but so, so be it, right? I think it'll just be in an, in an overarching better environment. I think that's probably the, the way I would think of that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So let's, all right, let's finish up with this then. We are coming into what uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, my friend from Twitter, has called the decade of discontent. And if you're familiar with the sort of generational thinking uh, that's laid out in the book, The Fourth Turning, um, you'll know that we're sort of in this fourth turning now, this, this crisis phase. And this has been shown repeatedly throughout history, especially in American history, uh, that we go through these kind of 80-year cycles and that we're at the, the end of, of this current 80-year cycle that began around the end of World War II. Um, and it prognosticates a, a crisis uh, that will sort of clean the slate and lead to the emergence of uh, a new awakening, a new awakened age. And this has to do with the the phenomenon is sort of driven by the relationships between human generations. Um, and there are always, you know, technologies or systems or organizations that are sort of caught in the middle, in the midst of these particular, you know, turnings. Uh, but, and, and they influence how those turnings, you know, come to pass. You, either you can kind of resolve that turning in a relatively, you know, uh, productive way, or you can resolve that in, uh, in a way that's not so productive. Uh, so in the next 10 or 15 years, do, are you guys more on the kind of pessimistic uh, side that we're going to resolve this particular turning uh, in with, with, a, you know, with a crisis that uh, you know, kind of ends badly? Or on the other side, uh, you know, with maybe the use of Bitcoin that we'll see this turning uh, you know, be more productive and, and on a positive note? I'm, I'm optimistic, but I do think we'll, we will have a crisis. I think we're in the midst of a crisis. Like, I think you can only know these things for sure in retrospect. And, and while you're going through it, you can't really recognize the, the gravity of it. And I think I just have a hunch we may be going through that crisis, especially with the economic shutdown, the, the mass unemployment here. I mean, it's hard to deny we're going through a crisis. We, tens of millions of people unemployed millions of people uh, on permanent unemployment, which is, which is not a good trend to see. Um, but I think people are, I, I'm optimistic because I think it's gotten to such a point, hit such a head that more and more people are going to be like soul searching and be like, how, how did it get this bad? And uh, I had a great conversation with Jeff Bandry this morning, posted that episode. He, uh, brought up a very good phrase and term and I think probably describes why there's so much vitriol going on. It probably plays into the fourth turning as well. It definitely does. So the concept of uh, elite overproduction and a generational thing where you tell uh, here in America, at least we told my generation, I'm a millennial, you got to go to college, you got to get a degree. Uh, once you get that degree, you'll be able to go to the workforce and, uh, and, make a good salary, make a good life for yourself. And that's turning out not to be the case. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the reasoning behind going to get this, uh, this sort of elite degree, if you will, that would lead you to the elite class, uh, was that you'd be able to separate yourself from the working class. Be able to say, hey, I'm better than the working class. I, financially, I'm better off. Materially, I'm better off. And that's just not coming to fruition. So, uh, now what we're seeing is a bunch of these college grads who have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. They're like, hey, I was promised this 
uh, this elite status and that I was going to be better than the working class. And when they're not able to do that financially, they try to do that culturally by creating a subjective morality that they, they hold the higher ground in their mind. I think that's a lot of what we're seeing going on now. And again, you can only know this in retrospect, but it feels to me, at least with conversations with, with people that the pendulum swings to such a degree where it's like, all right, all right, let's take a step back. Let's figure, figure this stuff out. And I think, yeah, tw- the 2020s, especially the early 2020s, we've got a lot of um, shit to shake out of our system. Um, this decade, probably, I think it will be front-loaded just because uh, technology is obviously a double-edged sword, but I do think if we can get good information out there, it can and, and help people realize why we're in this, this problem a lot faster. Technology enables us to do that and could expedite the, the sort of Trend, transition to to more uh, to better times, but uh, Steph and I were actually talking earlier today. This happens a lot slower than than you expect. So maybe I'm being a little bit too optimistic. So, <laughs> yeah, look, I agree with a lot of what you're saying there, Marty. I think we are going through a crisis. That crisis will only be clear on the other side of the crisis. Uh, it there are some bad trends that we could point to and say, well, look, sometimes you see currency wars and that may lead to trade wars and potentially you know i hope not but it may lead to real wars but i think the flip side of the and, and the other one is that obviously state surveillance right like the government is so there's so much regulation and bureaucracy and surveillance going on that you basically feel like you can't do anything without having you know a papers please moment somewhere right and i think many of us resent that and don't want to like we grew up in a time where things were a bit more simple and they weren't like that they weren't that bad and so I think many people will want to go back to that. And so that will also drive the pendulum swing the other way in the direction of liberty. And so I think people will go back and seize back their liberty. And a big part of that, obviously, is the Bitcoin message and the Bitcoin story. So it's on us in terms of how well we can communicate to people. And at this moment, when they are starting to stop and reconsider, well, hang on, we're just seeing you know, the same old stuff happened again over and over every political election cycle and it's getting worse and worse. Maybe it's time for something different and Bitcoin might just be that thing. I'm personally seeing a lot of people who are starting to more seriously reconsider these ideas where maybe they heard about Bitcoin a couple of years ago, they never really got into it. Now they're thinking, yeah, actually, I do want to I do want to learn a bit more about this. Yeah. Oh, you got this podcast? Let me listen to a few episodes from that. Oh, how do I get some? Okay. I'll buy some here. Oh, hardware wallet. Okay. Yeah. Let me get that. And it's, it starts that journey. So it's about, it's on us to try and uh, orange pill people out there and uh, help them see that there is a really deeper root cause to many of the problems that we're seeing and really why Bitcoin is a way to start trying to fix some of these problems. Bitcoin Morpheus, I know you'll have something to follow up with here. That's just a Twitter handle. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, I very much am optimistic just because I think it's such a powerful idea and it just over and over again, I just find really intelligent people. Um, now that I've been able to watch it for a little over three years, you know, being in the space, I just find over and over like very intelligent people in my life get a hold of Bitcoin and, or whether it's through me or through somebody else and they, they end up going down the rabbit hole too. 
And then obviously I've met so many people in the space, you know, that have been in it for two years, five years. I mean, you've got people like Connor Brown that are relatively new and you've got people like the peers and the bits teams that have been around for a long time. And, you know, and I do have a lot of friends that are super into Bitcoin who are not known Bitcoiners as well. Um, and they've reached out to me since, you know, uh, my profile in the space, you know, just getting a little bit more known and, and you realize, wow, there's yet another super smart person that I always respected from, you know, a previous career or something like that. And of course, yeah, it makes sense they're into Bitcoin. So I just think it's this thing that is true and that uh, is inevitable and that people will get sucked into over time. And it's a little bit of a litmus, it's a, it's a really strong litmus test for your powers of reason. And, uh, and also like how strongly you hold on to misconceptions that you may have. You know, because there are certainly people that are full on Keynesians or, you know, crypto nuts or whatever that scored better on tests than all of us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and they're just they've got this one thing just really, really wrong. I mean, we there's a guy, some uh, <laughs> some former Goldman PM who has a one point four billion dollar hedge fund uh, tweeted out today that uh you know i made my first crypto purchase ever this week xrp ripple you know <laughs> and you know he, he wrote it from an ipad on his you know twitter on his ipad and uh, the guy went to university of chicago and johns hopkins for graduate studies and used to write for forbes and runs a 1.4 billion dollar hedge fund and it's like i was like you know the information asymmetry right now is just off the charts like everything that's not nailed down any sat that you know is being sold for less than a hundred thousand dollars per bitcoin um like grab it while you can learn what you can evangelize hard like this is the time to really stake your claim on the bitcoin blockchain and to help the people you care about do the same um because those people will figure it out i don't think that guy's stupid i think he just shouldn't have tweeted yet <laughs> <laughs> you know like I, I i don't i highly doubt this dude is stupid and i think that he's going to probably end up reading some stuff about bitcoin based on the comments in the intransigency and the uh, toxicity in the comments and realize that it wasn't just like an innocuous throwaway line for an ex-goldman hedge fund manager like everybody's pointing him toward paul tudor jones and saying like that's because he's so much smarter than you now he's going to read paul tudor jones's thesis on bitcoin and he'll start down the rabbit hole and somebody will give him your podcasts <laughs> you know? And then we'll have a new Bitcoiner. Um, so this is just, it's just such a great moment in time for people that, that understand it early enough or earlier than, than the crowd that's coming. Um, and I am optimistic. I very much think that, you know, the existence of Bitcoin lets us live in, uh, you know, a, a definite optimist uh, point of view in, in sort of the, the way Peter Thiel thinks about things um, and lays it out in zero to one. Uh, I definitely have, impossible to strip away my optimism i've always been optimistic for whatever reason i think it's just a deficiency um but <laughs> but it, there wasn't something you know uh definite to drive toward it just didn't seem like there was a solution um until bitcoin because bitcoin affects and fixes so many different things and settles so many different arguments um and just it just opens up such a, a great bright orange future um you know if it plays out anywhere close to the ways that we're thinking about plus all of the things that we're not thinking about 
And I think there are so many positive knock-on effects that we're just not talking about and not theorizing, or, the, or maybe that somebody has, but it's just not widely known because that person just doesn't happen to blog. <laughs> you know, so it, it's just going to be a really fascinating. I wouldn't want to be alive any other time or doing anything else other than what we're doing today. Um, you know, yeah. we can expedite this all by voting Kanye and for president of the United States. In <laughs> yeah, That's obviously, the only person I would ever vote for. <laughs> um. Well, he dominated a Twitter poll that I put out, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I put one out. It got, got a you know, couple hundred votes or something, and Kanye was going at 40%. Uh, Biden was next. Uh, Trump was next. And, uh, and Brock Pierce was tra- trailing Don by 1%. They were at like 17, 16. <laughs> this, is, this is real yeah. world. This is, li- this is real life. Yes. People don't, people don't want to get out and Brock the vote? Oh my God. <laughs> you need Mises. <laughs> <laughs> and like, here's the problem, right? This is the statement of the problem right here. And we can't seriously have a conversation about how to fix these issues because look at the, uh, you know, the, the potential solutions laid out before us. Uh, and it's one or the other, you know, it's one a one B they're basically the same thing. And we know what's going to happen next. So um, I, I think Corey's really, you know, just right on, spot on here with his inspirational words that, that Bitcoin gives us a, a third way, you know, plan B, an escape route, and will prove to be a, a consensus point for so many people on the planet as a, as a new way to organize our society and govern ourselves uh, through, you know, economic justice and sound money. Um, all right. Well, I wanted to wrap things up there. Um, Stefan, shoot us uh, any final words you have and just wanted to say thank you for your time today. Yeah, look, uh, I think I've enjoyed the chat with you guys. I think uh, it's going to be a really exciting uh, next few years in terms of Bitcoin. It's going to be a pessimistic next few years in terms of government overreach. But you know, I think uh, if you sort of get through to that other side, I think it is going to be a, bright, uh, a brighter future. Marty, thanks for your time today, man. Oh, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I think just be ready for the TikTokers pumping shit coins. Don't get too angry at them. Just know <laughs> in the long term, the, the, fundamentals, the fundamentals of Bitcoin are much better. Uh, that's one thing I'm going to try to do more going forward. Uh, just focus on Bitcoin, not really worry about all the shit coinery out there, I think, time and time again. I was sure you were going to say you were going to focus on TikTok more. No, God, no. Delete, <laughs> Practice my delete, dance moves and, you know. <laughs> delete that cursed app. Especially if you're, seriously, if you're a Bitcoiner and you have that app, that thing's logging your copy, your, your copy board. So if you just so happen to copy an address or something like that, they can spy on you that, that way. They can probably switch it out if they have that, that knowledge as well. Delete that cursed app. It's making people do weird things. Um, yeah, I'm not I mean, there, they've been that. they've been old ladies eating light bulbs in the in the hinterlands of China for years now on uh, apps that pre- predated TikTok that were kind of the same thing like Kuaishu and some of these other ones. Um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, you're gonna see some crazy stuff. There's people uh, buying Dogecoin. It's insanity. Yeah, I'd rather <laughs> eat light bulbs personally. 
but uh, <laughs> I wonder what I wonder what Jackson Palmer thinks about all the TikTokers pumping. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty funny. Maybe, we'll, maybe he'll maybe he'll come back and claim his lost Doge. I don't know. Um, yeah, the last thing I want to say is like we're watching all this craziness, and I, I don't know why it didn't get well. It got plenty of love, but to our uh, a week ago, July first just posted, you know, something you can get from TradingView, which is, uh, you know, the stock market returns in gold terms. And obviously it looks, you know, super down compared to Bitcoin because Bitcoin's just gone nuts for 10 years now. But even in gold, which as we know, was a wildly manipulated asset and kept lower than it ought to have been through government and bank collusion. Uh, you know, we're, the S&P right now is at, you know, 2008 levels right now and well below uh, 2006, 2007 levels in gold terms. Even the NASDAQ, which has, you know, all the big tech stocks that have gone absolutely bananas is well below 2006 levels in gold terms. So this is just inflation and it's inflating the assets. And this is exactly what happened in the Weimar Republic. It was just stock speculation. And, you know, it was, you know, Hans Day Trader Global instead of Davy Day Trader Global. And it was the early 1920s. And, you know, it ain't real. I mean, you, you just got to be got to be careful with where you put your money. And I like stock gains with a Z as much as anybody. I love me some penny stock Amazon and some shitcoin Tesla. That makes no sense. And uh, I'm glad I still have some of my 401k allocated there. But I'm also really glad the rest of it's in Bitcoin. All in Bitcoin. That's my motto. It's the way I go. This, this is not financial advice. All right, guys. Thanks so much. This is a ton of fun as always. Uh, really respect the work that you guys are doing, carrying forward the flag of Bitcoin education and content and has really, uh, in, your work's really inspired, uh, you know, a next generation of Bitcoin content producers, including myself and many other fantastic people out there really pumping out some great Bitcoin content to help shepherd this next wave of new coiners. Uh, hopefully find their way a little bit faster and more sure-footed then we found ourselves in 2017, 2018, trying, trying to make our way. Um, so you guys who are watching now on YouTube can subscribe to the podcast, swansignalpodcast.com. Vice versa, you can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash swansignal. That's it for today. Thanks, everyone. Right, hey, guys. Thank you. Thanks to Stefan and Marty for joining us on Twitter. You can follow Stefan at Stefan Levera at S-T-E-P-H-A-N-L-I-V-E-R-A and Marty at Marty Bent, M-A-R-T-Y-B-E-N-T. Corey is at Corey Clipston, that's C-O-R-Y-K-L-I-P-B-S-T-E-N and myself at Citizen Bitcoin. On behalf of the SWAN team, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the SWAN Signal Podcast. You can join us live next time, as I mentioned at the top, on Twitter or YouTube. And you can jump into our Swan Signal Telegram chat room. We have a lively crew in there. The chat during our conversation gives you a chance to ask questions of our guests. And that conversation continues beyond, after, and in between each of our broadcasts. You can find that chat on Telegram at t.me slash swansignal. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin. That's it for this week. 
Thanks for joining us. 